Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. I will be your host today as we go through the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. This is the second episode in the current series on blockchain. And in today's episode, I will mainly focus on Bitcoin, talk about where it came from, what it is, how it works, that kind of stuff, how it stands out, and what are some negative aspects, because there definitely are those as well. And then I'll get into some other cryptocurrencies that focus on aspects that are not quite as good with Bitcoin. There are some things that Bitcoin is very good at and some things that it's not. And there have been probably thousands of different cryptocurrencies that have sprung up since Bitcoin that address many of these different issues and they focus on different areas and different needs. And so I'll talk about some of those as well very briefly. And that's the plan for today's episode. And then in next week's episode, it will be the update episode. So I'll talk about where we are in this blockchain series and what the next three episodes will be to wrap it up and what we're going to be covering in those and how they tie together. And then I also want to do an update on Syria because in the Agorism series that I did, I think two series ago, there were two episodes where I mentioned Rojava and this is the area of Northeast Syria where they declared themselves autonomous and a stateless region and separated from Turkey and Syria. And they had very interesting governance structure, very democratic, very focused on civil rights and women's rights and this kind of stuff. And I, I did a highlight of that. If you've listened to the podcast, you remember that, I'm sure. And so since that has been in the news recently, as of this recording, I am going to do an update on that as well, because that does impact the things that I had talked about before. And I do want to keep you guys up to date on things that I talk about. So I'll do that in the update episode as well. But for this episode, let's get started with talking about Bitcoin. Now, where did Bitcoin come from? The very first account of Bitcoin came from somebody or some persons known as Satoshi Nakamoto. And it is very likely that that is not a real name, if you did not know already. And there was a white paper that was released in 2008 that described basically Bitcoin. It was entitled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And that was in 2008, like I said. And in 2009, the code was released as open source software. And so basically the ability to start the Bitcoin network and use Bitcoin and that kind of stuff was released in 2009. Now, Satoshi actually did stick around for the first few years and kind of guided the project and Bitcoin and talked to different people. It was mainly cryptographers that were really into that kind of stuff, very niche, and a lot of anarchists and people with those ideologies as well. And they kind of combined to form the very early Bitcoin community. And Satoshi was around in those first few years. He did talk with many of the developers and there was a lot of communication there. But then Satoshi basically just disappeared and no one knows who Satoshi really is. No one knows what happened, why he left or who it is, whether it's a he, a she, a whole group of people. No one really knows. And so that's one very interesting aspect of Bitcoin. But uh, Bitcoin did take off and it did succeed to an extent and it definitely continued without Satoshi. The very first transaction that was sent on the Bitcoin network was in 2009 in January and it contained this message, quote, The Times, 03 January 2009, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks, end quote. And so that was basically doing a timestamp saying basically that this was during the financial crisis and the government was bailing out banks and it did a timestamp there the 3rd of January 2009. And this does highlight the ideology behind Bitcoin. The whole point here was that the fiat monetary system, the government and government interference, as well as corporate greed 
have all failed the people and failed society. So it doesn't matter where you look, whether it's just your money and the system it works in, or whether it's your government and the people that rule over you and the laws, or whether it is the corporate system that is crony and corrupt, they have all failed and they do not perform the way most of us would ideally want these types of things to perform. We're not getting what we want out of this, and so therefore, we need an alternative. And that was Satoshi's original vision, was that he was creating an alternative to the current system where there was no fiat money that was controlled by governments, there was no government involvement or interference or permission at all. There was no corporation that was in charge of this. This was something totally different and totally new. And the point was that everything we have does not work, and we have proven that it does not work. Therefore, I am creating this new system. Use it if you want. And that was kind of the way Bitcoin started. The solution that Bitcoin provided was specifically a decentralized monetary system that was open to all, and it was secure from tampering. And so it basically fixed the issues that Satoshi saw with fiat and governments and corporations. He created something that was decentralized. There was no one source that was controlling everything, making all the decisions, and therefore there was no one source to get corrupted or, from a security standpoint, to attack and to compromise. And also, this was a system that was open to everyone, no matter who you were or where you were, what country you lived in, what your socioeconomic status was. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, whether you're Chinese or American or Japanese. It just doesn't matter. Anyone can use this. And the final thing was that it was very secure and safe. So you weren't going to have to worry about someone stealing your money or your bank going out of business and your money disappearing or anything like this. It was safe. A government couldn't just take your money because they don't like something you're doing because you broke the law. Well, they don't have access. And so you don't have to worry about these things. It was completely secure and completely safe. And so that's the idea behind Bitcoin. And with Bitcoin, Satoshi created a new technology to implement the Bitcoin network, and that technology was blockchain. So the previous episode before this one was one where I did cover blockchain and talked about what that was. And so if you have not listened to that, then go back and listen to that first. That way you have all of that background information, because I am not going to cover that again. But that does need to be mentioned, that that is the backbone behind the Bitcoin system and behind all these cryptocurrencies that I will be discussing today. It's all backed up and it is all created through blockchain technology. That is the system behind all this. But it's more than just the technology. I talked about the technology last episode. This episode is about cryptocurrencies specifically. So blockchain technology can be used for many things. And the first implementation and probably the most common use case as of now is for a currency. It's blockchain technology used to implement a decentralized currency. And Bitcoin obviously was the very first one, and that's the one we're talking about now. Some of the main features of Bitcoin include its record. So Bitcoin has never been hacked. It's never been shut down. It's never failed. And so it has a very good record historically. If it was released in 2009, and as of this recording, it's the end of 2019, that's 10 years of a totally decentralized monetary system outside of any government control that has not been compromised once. So that's very good. Now, you may say you've heard that Bitcoin's been hacked. Well, Bitcoin itself, the network, has never been hacked or compromised. However, there have been exchanges that have been hacked and compromised. So basically, an exchange operates like a third party, like a bank, where you can work through this exchange to trade and buy and sell things and trade cryptocurrencies and that kind of stuff. And so with it just being a third party, it's an entity, it's a corporation, it's a website, whatever, that can be hacked. And so if they are not keeping their Bitcoin extremely secure and they don't have their security protocols in place or they are not strong enough, 
then that can be hacked. But the Bitcoin network itself cannot be. So where someone may be able to steal funds from an exchange, they are never going to be able to steal funds from you. At least not unless you give them your private key or they somehow find it. And again, that's up to you. If you are secure and you are safe and you have that stored somewhere in a safe where no one has access to it or a security deposit box or you have it memorized in your head, then as long as you don't tell somebody, no one can ever get it. And that's the idea. So overall, with the Bitcoin network, the record is extremely clean and very successful. So the next aspect that I want to talk about with Bitcoin is the supply. So this is one of the things that makes the Bitcoin monetary system distinct. It's that it is deflationary. So I've talked again on this podcast many times about the issues with inflation. And with that, your money becomes less and less valuable over time because more and more is printed. And that's at least one of the reasons, at least. And that's what I'll highlight in relation to Bitcoin here. And that's because Bitcoin does the opposite. Instead of the money supply increasing, the money supply either stays the same or actually decreases over time. So there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin ever created. That's it. There will never be more than 21 million. As of this recording, we have not hit that 21 million mark, but we are getting fairly close. That'll happen in the next few years, and then there will never be another Bitcoin created. Now, I did talk in the previous episode on blockchain about miners and how that system works. And basically, for a brief overview, the miners help to process transactions on the Bitcoin network. They have computers that they use and they allow their processing power of their computers to be used to process transactions on the network. And in exchange, what they receive is newly minted Bitcoin. And so that is how miners are paid and that is their incentive structure for processing transactions and doing it honestly. And that's how that system works. And so that is how new Bitcoin is created. It's mined. It's not just uh, printed out of thin air like government monies are. Instead, it actually takes someone spending money on equipment, spending money on electricity, using processing power in their computer, doing work, and then they have to actually win the right to process the next block of transactions, then they can actually create Bitcoin. So it takes energy, it takes input, it takes investment, a lot like mining a precious metal. It's just a digital version, not a physical version. And that is why it is called mining. And that's the idea behind that. And there are many benefits of that. But going back to the supply only 21 million Bitcoin will ever be created. And so with that, once those 21 million are created, the miners are still going to need an incentive. And so instead of new Bitcoin being created and basically inflating the supply, at that point in time, miners will only be rewarded through transaction fees. And so there's no telling how this will end up. We don't know if Bitcoin's going to be extremely popular, widely used, and so there'll be very small transaction fees, and the tiniest fees will still give enough monetary value to the miners to make it worth it for them and for them to still process, or it might be the opposite. Maybe Bitcoin, once the 20 million have been created, 21 million, sorry, then people would know that there won't be any more and that if they hold on to their Bitcoin, it will gain value. And so maybe there will be much fewer transactions on the network because people are just holding their Bitcoin. And so with that, maybe the transaction fees would actually have to go up and it might be fairly high transaction fees. We just don't know. This hasn't happened yet. So like many of the recent episodes I've done that are a little more theoretical and looking at possibilities, we just really don't know what this is going to look like. So I cannot say. I can tell you roughly what the possibilities are, but that's as much as I can do. What I can tell you is that after 21 million Bitcoin have been created, the supply will never increase, so there will not be inflation. And more than likely, people will probably lose their private key. That has happened many times before. They'll lose their hardware that they store their Bitcoin on. Things like this will happen, and so the supply will likely actually go down. 
And so it will not only be deflationary because the supply doesn't go up and therefore the value will likely go up over time, but it'll also be deflationary as far as the actual amount, the number of Bitcoin that will be out there on the network accessible to people. So that's another major aspect of Bitcoin is that supply deal. And so the next thing is privacy. So Satoshi ideally wanted an anonymous peer-to-peer cash system. That was the ideal. And he thought that when he created the Bitcoin network, that the way he set it up and the way the code worked, it would create this anonymous um, monetary system where anybody can use it and you can't trace who those users are. The idea here is that when you create a Bitcoin wallet, you don't give your personal information. You basically just click a button and you created a digital wallet and it comes with a string of numbers and letters and that is your wallet address. And so anybody can do this and it's not attached to your name. So how's anybody going to know who owns which wallets? And in addition to this, if you are diligent about your security, then you will create a new wallet every time you do a transaction. So there won't even be a trail on your one wallet that leads to many different transactions, each wallet will only have one transaction, then there'll be a new wallet. And so no one will be able to trace whether you sent that Bitcoin to somebody else that has a different wallet, or whether it was a transaction within your own supply to one of your own new wallets. And when you receive Bitcoin, they don't know if the Bitcoin you received in one of your wallets is connected at all to the same person that owns one of your other wallets. So you could have a 100 different digital wallets, and all of them only have one transaction, some sending, some receiving, and there's no way to really tie those together. So with all these aspects, the idea was that the Bitcoin network would be anonymous and completely private. The issue is that it didn't quite work out that way. So what ended up happening is that There have been computer algorithms that have been created that will basically hunt down transactions on the Bitcoin network and trace them and track them and see where all the different connections are. Then they can compare that with records for exchanges and times when people spend Bitcoin or use Bitcoin with a company or in a transaction where they actually release their identity So they can then identify certain players, certain people that own digital wallets. And then once they start tracking and they start filling in some of these blanks, then they might be able to make more connections to reveal the identities of more people. And so there have been many people that have been connected to specific Bitcoin wallets. But the Bitcoin network has never been deciphered in a way where all of the identities of all the digital wallets have been known, or not even the majority of them. So to a degree, Bitcoin is private, but also to a degree, it's not. This is a public ledger. I mentioned this in the previous episode, that with a public ledger, all of the transactions are public. And so even if you don't know who is responsible, like which specific individual owns a wallet, maybe you know that this wallet was involved in a hack. So maybe someone hacked a an exchange that was online and they stole 100 Bitcoin. Well, you can see where that Bitcoin went. It went to the Bitcoin wallet XYZ. Well, you may not know who owns wallet XYZ, but you do know that that Bitcoin that is in it, at least 100 Bitcoin that is in that wallet XYZ is stolen. And so with that, when the individual who has control of wallet XYZ sends some of this Bitcoin somewhere else, then someone would technically be able to tell that this is tainted Bitcoin in a sense. It is stolen money. And some people may not accept that. Now, some people may accept it and not realize it, and then they then have tainted Bitcoin and someone else may not accept it. Or maybe that person will split it up into 100 different wallets that they own themselves and then use those wallets, each with one Bitcoin apiece, to distribute that Bitcoin and sell it and trade it or whatever. They can, they can do that you know, a thousand times just with themselves and hopefully wash it enough to be able to trade it out. 
there are many different possibilities. But the issue here is that you do not have fungibility. The idea of fungibility is that you have a money where each individual unit is equal to any other individual unit. They all have the same value. So if you think about it, if you have a dollar bill, for example, that dollar bill has the same value as any other dollar bill that exists, period. As long as it's a real dollar bill, it has the same value as your dollar bill. Where you have issues with something such as Bitcoin is that one Bitcoin is not necessarily always equal in value to another Bitcoin. With the previous example of the thief that stole 100 Bitcoin, each one of those 100 Bitcoin is probably worth less than any other untainted Bitcoin that hasn't been involved in a theft or a crime. And so maybe that person will not be able to get rid of that 100 Bitcoin, or maybe they will get rid of it, but at a discounted rate because of the history associated with that. So, for example, if we knew for a fact what cash has been involved in bank robberies and which coins have been involved in bank robberies, and that was somehow attached to the note, like it just had a big stamp on it that said, this is stolen money, then more than likely that dollar or $100 or $0.25 or whatever it is, is probably not going to be accepted at many stores. And if someone is willing to accept this money that obviously has been stolen and has been involved in criminal activity, then someone's probably not going to want that. They're not going to accept it. And if they do want it, they'll probably give you 25 cents in exchange for your tainted dollar bill. And so the point would be that each dollar bill is no longer equal to each other dollar bill because of the history associated with it. It loses that property of fungibility. And in order to have a useful currency, it does need to be fungible. Every dollar or every unit needs to have the same value as any other unit. And so that's one of the issues with Bitcoin. And we'll, I guess I'll mention that coming up and some of the negative aspects. But when we look at the privacy aspect of Bitcoin, we can see that there are some holes in the privacy system that is set up there, the privacy protocol. And there are also some holes in just the fact that it's an open ledger and all the transactions are public and that has some fungibility issues. So that is the relation to privacy and how that filters down into many different aspects of Bitcoin as a currency. Now, the next thing I wanted to mention was governance. So you may be wondering if there is no central entity that is controlling the Bitcoin network. No one is at the head of it. There's no CEO. Uh, Satoshi's not around. Even if he was, he wasn't running the whole thing. There's no company. There's no government in charge of it. So who makes decisions? How do they do anything if there is no formal governance system? Well, as you can probably guess, if you have listened to other episodes of this podcast, I am a big fan of having governance without having formal government systems. And so you have heard many examples of that from ancient Israel to Rojava in Syria, as well as Bitcoin here. And so the idea here is that you don't have a centralized government that runs things in this it's not a corporate government or a political government. There is no government whatsoever. And the idea is that that helps to avoid corruption. It helps to avoid tyranny. It helps to avoid many different things that Satoshi did not want. These are all the things that he saw was wrong with the current monetary systems around the world. And that's what he wanted to get rid of. And so instead, the way it works is that any any changes, any changes whatsoever can be proposed and they can be attempted, and they can be done by anyone. There is no limit. There is no qualification test or application or board to go to for approval. It doesn't exist. Anybody can propose that the Bitcoin code be changed in this specific way. So let's say, for example, that people wanted a flat fee, a flat transaction fee for all Bitcoin transactions. And they wanted to implement that directly in the code to where that would just be the way the Bitcoin system worked from then on out, period. There's no getting around it. Well, if someone wanted to do this, it would be some sort of developer probably or someone that would hire a developer. They would write that code and then they would have basically the Bitcoin code with this added change that now made all transaction fees the same at a flat rate. Well, 
they could implement that and release that code and run it on their computer as their computer is maybe processing the Bitcoin blockchain. But the problem is more than likely no one else would adopt that same code and use that same code. And so it would end up creating a fork. And I talked about forks in the previous episode as well, where there are a different set of transactions because something has been changed and it's not accepted on the main blockchain chain. And so it creates a new chain, a new fork, and that is a totally different thing. And so someone would have just created a new cryptocurrency that's just like Bitcoin, just with a flat transaction fee. And he would probably be the only user on that chain. And so it would basically be worthless. However, let's say that somebody wanted to do this same thing, but they want to go about it a little differently. Maybe they talk to some of the top mining companies that control a lot of the mining hash rate, the processing power, and they talk to them and say, hey, we think that we have a solution for one of these issues, the issue of transaction fees, and we think this will work really well for the network. This is what we want to do. This is the code. Uh, Why don't you review it and make sure that it looks really good to you? And what do you think? And so they can basically play politics here and get some miners on board. They might also talk to some of the main developers. There are developers that are anonymous and there are developers that are known. We know their actual names. And so they could talk to different developers. They could talk to the community. They could get on Reddit and on different social media sites and on places like Medium and post articles. And they could basically try to get support. They could use politics, political means, to gain support for their idea of implementing this small change in the code for the Bitcoin network with the intention of having the Bitcoin network accept this change. And from then on out, that would be Bitcoin. Well, let's say that this individual that wants this change to go through is very successful. Everybody loves the new idea and basically everybody's on board. So then what happens is that he can implement the code and release it open source so everybody can see it, everybody can adopt it. And if people are on board, then miners will use that code And the people using the network will update their Bitcoin code. And that way, all the computers that are then processing Bitcoin transactions and using the Bitcoin network will be running on this new code. And therefore, the change will be implemented because everybody's using this code that has this change in it. Now, if there were any people that did not like the idea, let's say there's two miners that didn't like it and everybody else did. Well, those two miners would use the original Bitcoin code without the change. And again, that would be a fork. Now, technically, the chain that implemented the change would be the fork off the original and those two miners would have the original Bitcoin chain. But that's probably not the way people would think of it. People would think of the version that 99% of the network agreed with as being the real Bitcoin chain. And this tiny chain with two people that basically is worthless, they would write that off and it would probably disappear. So that's kind of the idea here is that you can make decisions and you can make changes. But you don't have a centralized source to go to. There is no formal process for this. And so it it does create many checks and balances, which is good. And so it can create a balance of power between the miners and the developers and the users and all these people have a say and they have legitimate power. And so this in a way is good. It's like the way that America was founded. The idea in the Constitution was to set up these different departments that that are checks and balances against each other, that one department will keep the other in check and one branch will keep the other in check. And that's the way this works. And they all have different powers. And so that's kind of the idea here with Bitcoin is that you do have miners that actually run the network and ultimately whatever they implement is what is used. Now, on the other side, you have developers. They're the ones that write the code and make the changes. So without them, you can't have any changes. And if you want changes, they are the ones that have to create it and they are the ones that make it. And so developers are very important. They're the ones that keep the the network updated. They keep it secure. If there's any possible vulnerabilities, the developers would be the ones to find it and the developers would be the ones to fix it. They are very important. And so then you have this third party, which would be the users. Now, if there was a change that developers created and miners implemented, but the users in mass did not like it, 
then they would use a different cryptocurrency and therefore Bitcoin would maybe not be worthless, but be worth much, much less and would not have the same adoption. And so users ultimately have a lot of power because if a chain and a network or a cryptocurrency is not being used, then it doesn't really have any value. If that's its only value to be used as a currency and it's not used as a currency, then it loses its value. And so there are definitely some balances here between these different power players and categories. And this is a good way and in many ways, at least, to set up a governance system. It's one where you have shared powers, shared responsibilities, and this allows for things like changes and updates and things like this, but without allowing any one group or party to take control of the network and run things. So with that being said, that does bring up one of the biggest negatives with Bitcoin, and so I'll get into that section here, the negatives of Bitcoin. And the first one would be the issues of governance. So the Bitcoin network is very slow to adapt. It's very slow to change. It is very stable, however. And so this can be a good thing. This can be a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. So on the one side, it does create a very stable currency. It's not like they're making a lot of changes, doing it really quickly and spontaneously, and then creating changes that might have difficulties and vulnerabilities in the future because it wasn't tested long term. They don't have those issues because they don't do those kinds of things. And that is one advantage. But the negative side of that is that there is not a lot of change. So if there are new technologies, new ideas, new ways to basically improve Bitcoin, it's going to take a long time for them to be adopted. It's going to have to gain a lot of support. It's going to have to be tested, likely on other networks, on other currencies, before the Bitcoin community would be willing to implement it in the main Bitcoin chain. And so there's a lot of issues here. It does mean that it's very slow. It doesn't change much. And those are some negatives associated with it, even though we do have many positives that balance that out that I already talked about. So the next negative is basically, what is Bitcoin for? So going back to Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper that says that Bitcoin will be a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, the idea here is that Bitcoin is a currency, obviously. And so let's look at what does a currency do? Well, it has to be easy to use, it has to be fungible, it has to have many properties that Bitcoin, frankly, does not have. And so that's a bit of an issue. Bitcoin is not extremely fast, not compared to other cryptocurrencies and even some traditional networks on fiat money exchanges and banks. It is also not extremely cheap. There are many cryptocurrencies that are much cheaper, at least, and there are times when you can do transactions, let's say with cash between two parties, where you don't have any fee, and Bitcoin can't really compete with that. There is also the issue of it not being widespread enough. So if you have a currency, it has to be accepted. People have to be willing to accept it as a mode of transacting, a mode of exchange, and if people will not accept it, at least not in a widespread mainstream way, then that currency does not have a whole lot of value as a currency because you can't really spend it as a currency, so it doesn't really work as a currency. And so that's one of the issues here is that if Bitcoin's supposed to be a currency, it's really lacking in these areas in order to be a currency. Well, there are other people that say Bitcoin is a store of value so that people will get Bitcoin, and they will keep and hold that Bitcoin as an investment or as a store of value. They know that it is safe. They know that it's not going to have an inflationary aspect to it. And so they're just going to hold on to it instead of gold, for example. It's a replacement to gold. It's a digital version of gold. That's the way many people describe it. The problem, though, is that if you're using something as a store of value, one of the most important things is that it is stable. Now, if you pull up a chart of the value of Bitcoin in any other currency, it is not extremely stable. It goes way up. It goes way down. 
you're never going to know how much value you have tied up in your Bitcoin because it changes so much. It can drop 20% in a day. It can drop 50% in an hour. I have definitely seen many crashes and many spikes that have been in the double-digit percentage points Whereas if you kept your money in fiat, it's going to go down in value, but slowly, maybe by 2% a year or something like that. Or if you kept your money in gold, ideally it goes up in value, but not by much, by a few percentage points a year. And so these things are stable, at least relatively. And Bitcoin really is not. So as of now, it does not really fulfill that role of being a store of value, at least not very well. Well, what's another reason to use Bitcoin? What else could it be for? Well, it could just be for a blockchain platform. Blockchain technology provides a lot of benefits and a lot of use cases. And so Bitcoin has this blockchain network and you can use it for many different things. And so that's what gives it value. The problem here is that the Bitcoin network is very limited in its features and functionality. So there is not a whole lot you can do with Bitcoin as a blockchain platform. And especially when you compare it to many of the other options out there, like Ethereum, for example, you can't do all that much with Bitcoin. And so it's not really a blockchain platform. That's not its main use case. So what is Bitcoin good for? Well, it's still good for all these things, but it hasn't quite fulfilled what it needs to to ultimately fulfill these roles. So what will it fulfill in the future? We don't know. Again, we don't know how things will turn out. It could be all of these. It could be one of these. It could be none of these. We just don't know. We do know that Bitcoin does solve many issues with our current monetary system, many issues that people have with their governments, with corporations, with fiat money, and it does this very well. It definitely has a role to play. We just don't know what that role will be. So from a negative perspective, it's not really fulfilling these roles very well as it is now. Another negative is also one of the positives that I mentioned before, and that would be the deflationary nature of Bitcoin. So on one hand, it's good that it's deflationary. It will go up in value over time, at least in theory. It will not lose value due to an inflated supply, people just printing off new Bitcoin because you can't do that. So that's a good thing, but it's also a bit of a negative thing. So think about this. What if you got paid and your wages were given to you in Bitcoin? Let's say I have a job where they pay me one Bitcoin a day, and that is my wages. Well, the issue is that in time... That one Bitcoin a day will be worth less at times, but probably more and more every year. So even without the company giving me a raise, I am getting more and more money every year. Now, if I decided to get my wages in, let's say, US dollars, my wages would not change all that much. And so in order to actually make that work, a company would have to only use Bitcoin as their mode of payment, which is very unlikely, or they would have to come up with different salary scales and raise rates and all these kinds of things for different currencies in order to basically equalize this out or else everybody would, you know, choose Bitcoin if they think the price of Bitcoin is going to go up. And then all of a sudden the company is paying twice as much for this employee as they may be worth and as they wanted to pay all because of the currency they chose to pay them in. And that doesn't really work very well. So there are definitely some issues and complications with a deflationary currency as far as how it is practically implemented. Now, I will say that there are solutions to this, and this isn't something that makes Bitcoin dead in the water by any means. But there are complications and things that would have to be worked out with that just because it's deflationary. Now, another issue is how the Bitcoin network is processed and how it runs. It runs through proof of work. And I mentioned that in the previous episode as well. I won't get into that again. But the idea is that computers go through all this processing power, use up all this electricity, basically just to compete for the right to mine the next block. And there's really, there is a point to that. It's a security measure and it does have a role to play. But the idea here is that there are other ways of providing that security, such as proof of stake. And so with that, 
this electricity that's being used for this purpose is kind of wasted. Many people feel like that's just wasting a lot of electricity. If I remember right, in 2017 or 18, the Bitcoin network used about the same amount of electricity as some small nation states did. And that is quite a bit, and it goes up every year. And so this might be an issue for those that are big on climate change and those that are big on efficiency and these types of things. The Bitcoin network is drawing a lot of electricity out of the power grid to do something that it doesn't necessarily need to do that way. And so people see this as waste. Another negative here and an issue would be that there's a lot of power to miners they're the ones that process the network and validate and make sure that everything is the way it's supposed to be, and they are incentivized to do so. But the problem is that they're incentivized through profits, and that is the only reason, in general, that they are doing this. They are only mining Bitcoin to make a profit. If they can make a profit a different way, or if they can make a profit by cheating the system, they might be incentivized to do that. And so a lot of people are uncomfortable with this amount of power being given to groups and individuals who are just trying to make a buck and they are not actually invested in the ideology and they are not connected to the Bitcoin network on that level. And so people have an issue with that and see that as a negative. Another issue is that fees are relatively high. There are cryptocurrencies with virtually zero fees. There have been some with zero fees. And I mentioned how cash is something that can be transacted with zero fees, depending on how you do it. And so with Bitcoin having fees in order to send money, even if it might be much less to, say, send a million dollars from Canada to Saudi Arabia, you might pay a 10 or $20 fee to do that. Whereas if you went through banks and governments and stuff, it would be in the thousands. So it can be much cheaper, but it also can be more expensive. You might buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks for $5 and spend $5 on a transaction fee to get that processed. Well, all of a sudden you doubled the price of your coffee. That does not work. That's not a good thing. There is also an issue with speed on the Bitcoin network. Transactions are not instantaneous. And so because of this, it could sometimes make transactions difficult if they need to be instantaneous. You need a third party that kind of interferes with the whole idea of Bitcoin where you control your money yourself without a third party. And there are some issues there. As mentioned before, the governance structure is another negative that many people have against it. The transparency of the network is something many people have a problem with. And the final thing that'll segue into our next segment would be competition. So the fact that there are many other options out there for cryptocurrencies besides Bitcoin does create a problem for Bitcoin, because if there are other currencies that do a certain thing better, then people might be incentivized to use that instead of Bitcoin. I am going to mention some of these competitors, definitely not a large portion and definitely not in a whole lot of detail. I'll get into some specific examples of projects that are in operation now in another episode. But for now, I just want to mention some of the more popular and common cryptocurrencies that are in use today and what their benefits are and how they compare to Bitcoin and what roles they fulfill and why they exist, that type of thing. So if you look at a list of all the different cryptocurrencies in existence, it's going to list pretty much everything. You're going to have things like Ether, which is the unit of exchange that's used on the Ethereum network. However, the Ethereum network is not meant to be a monetary system. That's not the goal. That's not the plan. That's not what it's for. That's not its intended role. Although Ether can be used like a currency, that is not the goal behind the Ethereum network. So I'm not technically going to call that a cryptocurrency in the same way that I am discussing it in this episode with Bitcoin. I am going to focus on systems, networks, coins, currencies, whatever, that are specifically intended to be used as currency as the main function. The first one I'll mention would be Litecoin. Litecoin was a fairly early fork off the Bitcoin network that basically enabled transactions to occur in a lighter format, and it made them cheaper and faster. 
and it is now used kind of as a test net for Bitcoin. That's kind of the role that it's fit into recently, where if there is a change that someone wants to make to the Bitcoin network, oftentimes the Litecoin network will adopt it first. The code is very similar to Bitcoin, and then they'll see how it works out. And if it works out really well, then the main Bitcoin network is much more likely to adopt that later after it's been tested. So that's been kind of an interesting aspect. But in general, Litecoin is often used by people that just want a cryptocurrency that's quick and it's cheap and it's easy. Now, another one that's similar to this would be Bitcoin Cash. Bitcoin Cash was created with a fork. And what happened here is that there were some people that wanted to change the block size of transactions. There are some people that wanted something else. And basically, people were trying to figure out a way to scale the Bitcoin network. How are you going to be able to allow millions of users to use this network at one time and it still function the way it's supposed to, where it's not $100 per transaction, it doesn't take five days to verify which could happen if the network got clogged and there are too many people. It does not scale to that extent, at least as of that point in time and as of this point in time that I'm talking right now. And so the idea was that there was a group that wanted to implement a specific change in the code that would make transactions faster and easier and easier to scale and there was a large portion of the community that did not want to implement this change. There was um, some debate here, and it ended up being that half of the community, or I say half, less than half, split off and created what is now known as Bitcoin Cash, where they implemented this change, and they created something that does scale better and is faster, and they successfully did that even though it's kind of a temporary measure and they knew that going into it, but it did create this new cryptocurrency, Bitcoin Cash. And you still have the regular Bitcoin that did not implement that change. So that's how Bitcoin Cash was established. And similarly to Litecoin, it is used as a currency that's fairly fast, fairly cheap, that kind of stuff, a lot like Bitcoin. Now, the next one I'll mention is not nearly as much like Bitcoin, and that would be Stellar. So Stellar actually started as a fork off of Ripple. Ripple is a very popular digital asset, and that was one that was created to compete with the SWIFT system, and that's a system that banks use, at least as of today, it is the most popular system that banks use for exchanging money between each other and doing international exchanges. And it is, at least compared to the possibilities of cryptocurrencies, it's fairly expensive and takes a long time to verify and it doesn't work extremely efficiently. So there was a project called Ripple where they basically created a cryptocurrency to fill this role and you had different banks that were involved in it and they used this as a way to transfer funds in and out of different fiat currencies. Well, Ripple was fairly centralized and many people had a lot of issues with it. And there were a few people from that project that split off, created a fork of Ripple, and they created Stellar. And Stellar was made specifically for, well, mostly at least for person-to-person -person payments, ideally cross-border payments, and they made that very fast and very cheap, something where you could send value from for example, someone in the U.S. to someone in some country in Africa or in the Middle East or Europe, it didn't matter. You could send money all the way across the world, super cheap, super quick, and do it with the Stellar Network. And they have actually a network of third parties that work behind the scenes to help process these transactions and I'm not going to get into it here, but that is how they're able to make it extremely fast and extremely cheap, and it works very well, and it's a very good platform. I actually really like the Stellar project, but that's another one that is used as a currency. Now, the way it is used as a currency is more as an in-between currency, where you might take dollars, you'll change it into Stellar Lumens is the name of their currency, then you'll exchange, or you will send those lumens to someone across the world, that person will exchange those lumens for their currency. And so the transaction of sending lumens from person A to person B is super fast, super cheap, and then you just have to have an on-ramp and off-ramp off where you change your dollars to lumens and that person changed their lumens to pounds or whatever currency they're using. 
And so that's the idea there. And that is a currency, though, and it works very well, and it fulfills things that Bitcoin does not, at least not very well or as well. Next, I want to mention some currencies that focus on privacy. So I mentioned how privacy was a pretty big deal, and fungibility was fairly important for a currency in general. And so for the number one king of all privacy currencies, let's start off with Monero. That is probably the top dog when it comes to a privacy coin. And Monero is a cryptocurrency that has a privacy protocol called Ring Signatures. So I'm not going to do the details of how this works, but in a sense, you have many different transactions with many different wallet addresses that are all posted at one time. And so when even though they're posted to basically a public ledger, if you look at that ledger, you don't see a transaction of wallet A to wallet B of 10 Monero. Instead, you see a group of transactions where you have wallet A, B, C, D, E, and F. Two of those actually did a transaction but you see many different amounts. Maybe it's 10, 100, 50, 75, and you don't know which wallets transacted or with what amounts they transacted with. And so it basically shuffles all this data to where you can't actually see what's going on, and that's how it creates its privacy layer. And so that is the idea behind Monero. The problem is that it's not quite as cheap or as fast as things like Stellar or Litecoin or something like this because it does take more processing power to implement this more expanded protocol here. So with that, it is more expensive to do. And that's the one negative. I don't know about how Monero compares with Bitcoin. I think it's actually cheaper as of right now as I'm recording this than transactions on the Bitcoin network, but I'm not positive on that. The point, though, is that it's more expensive than the cheapest cryptocurrencies that are out there right now. Another privacy-centered cryptocurrency is Dash, and that's another one that does have a good bit of adoption, especially in many countries that are experiencing high inflation in their currencies. Places like Venezuela, for example, has seen a lot of adoption with Dash, and it was a fork off of Bitcoin. And what they did was they increased the privacy of Bitcoin and they also were able to make cheaper and faster transactions by implementing what's known as masternodes. So with a masternode, you have people that have invested large amounts of Dash. If I remember right, I think it's 10,000 Dash in order to create a masternode. I don't remember exactly, but it's a large amount of Dash that you have to put up in order to host a masternode and be a net masternode. And so with this, there's there's a lot fewer masternodes than there are actual miners on the network, but they fulfill a very similar role. But what the deal is here is since there are less of them, and since they are not processing every transaction, they are able to process specific transactions at a slightly higher fee, not much, and they can do it nearly instantaneously because it is not going through the same process. You basically fast track a transaction through the masternodes and you can get something that's nearly instant and extremely cheap still using this masternode system. Now, the negatives that many people point to is that creates a more centralized system. Even though it's not centralized, it is still very decentralized. It's more centralized than something like Bitcoin. And so people have an issue with that. But it is something that can be used legitimately as a currency and is in many places now. And so it is another very good example of a cryptocurrency that competes with Bitcoin. The next one I'll mention is Zcash. So Zcash was another fork that added a privacy layer. And what they used as their privacy protocol is what's known as zero-knowledge proofs. The basic idea of a zero-knowledge proof is that you can validate or prove that something is true without actually revealing what that something is. So let's say that I send you 10 Zcash. The network can prove that I truly am sending you 10 Zcash, that I have 10 Zcash in my wallet currently, and it can prove this without revealing the total amount that I have in my wallet to anybody else and without revealing the amount that 
happened in that transaction to everybody else. So you can prove cryptographically that something is true without actually having to reveal that data. Now, this is very important technology, and I will get into these as it relates to some other issues in a few future episodes. But for Zcash, that's just to say that this is the way that it uh, enacts privacy in a privacy layer, and it does this pretty well. People do have issues with how Zcash was first created. There was some trust that you have to put in the creators because there are possibilities for vulnerabilities at the very beginning of Zcash being created. But all in all, it is a fairly reputable privacy currency that is used fairly often. It was one of the first privacy currencies to be listed on some of the major exchanges. And so it does have a fairly prominent role and is generally in the top 10, if not top 20, at least, uh, cryptocurrencies on the market as far as market value is concerned. A final protocol I do want to mention, since I'm mentioning privacy, is one that's pretty new, and this one was called Mimblewimble. Now, Mimblewimble is a reference to Harry Potter, and it is actually the name of the privacy protocol, not of a specific cryptocurrency. Now, there is a cryptocurrency that came out shortly after that code was released called Grin, and Grin is a cryptocurrency that uses the Mimblewimble privacy protocol. But there are other projects that plan on using it as well. Why I mention it is because it's fairly unique and fairly ingenious. The idea here is that what the protocol does is it looks at a transaction and sees if any new currency has been created or if any currency is being destroyed in a transaction. As long as no new units are being created and no units are being destroyed, so basically the same amount exists before and after the transaction, then it processes the transaction and that's it. It doesn't have to do anything related to amounts that are in each wallet. It doesn't have to post the transaction and what it was or verify any other details about it. All it has to do is make sure that there really is the same amount of currency before the transaction as there was after. And so that's very little work that has to be done. That's very little processing that has to be done, which means that a currency that implements this can be done very cheaply and process transactions very quickly, nearly instantaneously, fairly easily, at least compared to many others, with ensuring complete privacy because it doesn't store any of that data because it doesn't need any of that data. So it doesn't have any of the information that other currencies do in order to break this privacy layer here. So for example, let's say that the Grin cryptocurrency only had 100 Grin in existence. Well, let's say that I, Bob, want to send 10 Grin to Alice. Well, what happens is that I have a wallet that has Grin in it. Alice has a wallet. I know her address. She tells me what it is. And so I send 10 Grin. I type in my digital wallet here, 10 Grin, send it to this address, click send. Well, what happens is that the network, all it has to do is verify that there was 100 Grin in existence on the whole network before this transaction. And if it succeeds and goes ahead and validates and processes the transaction, there will still only be 100 grand in existence. So no matter what that transaction was between me and Alice, whether it was one grand or the 10 grand that it really was, or whether I owned all the grand in existence, 100, and sent it all to her, it doesn't matter. As long as there's the same total in existence, it's going to go ahead and validate and process that transaction, and it's done. That's it. It just makes sure that the total supply is the same. And so it's very simple but it is extremely useful and extremely effective. And so that's one that to me is very interesting and I like the idea very much. We'll see if it gains traction or not. As of this recording, it is not one of the more popular currencies and Grin has definitely not gone mainstream. And as far as I know, there haven't been any that have implemented it and are in existence. There's one called Beam that was implementing Mimblewimble and... I'm not sure what stage they're at currently, but it is something that is not being used very commonly. So it's inter it'll be interesting to see how that develops from here on out. So 
all in all, that is everything I was going to cover today regarding Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Hopefully that gives you an idea of what Bitcoin is, what cryptocurrencies are, what some of the benefits are, what some of the issues are. You Ideally, if you've listened to the rest of this podcast, you have heard many complaints about the Federal Reserve, our monetary system in general, inflation, all these issues, banks, corruption, conspiracy, all this stuff. And all of it is true. It all exists. And I've gone over all these different things. Well, you can see, I would think, that Bitcoin is something that does actually solve a lot of these issues. And cryptocurrencies in general have a lot of potential when it comes to all of these problems that exist in our society and systems today. So it's something definitely to keep your eye on, definitely to learn more about. And we'll get into more about it in the following episodes. So... If you have not done so, please leave a rating and leave a review of this podcast somewhere, whether it be on the player that you listen to this on, the app, or go to iTunes and leave one there. That's probably the most helpful technically. Or you can go to the website and leave one on for different episodes. There's a place to do that there. You can share this podcast on social media, and that would be very appreciated. I would really like that. And it definitely is a big help for the podcast as a whole. And if you want to give support in any other way, you can give money. That's always a good option. You can go to Patreon. The link is in the show notes and on the website. Speaking of which, you can go to the website and like I said, leave a review of specific episodes there. And that is also a good way to support the show. I mentioned sharing the show on social media of any kind. You could follow me on Twitter and that also helps spread the news and just about anything you can think of that is supportive, it is greatly appreciated and you can do so. So please do if that is something you're interested in and willing to do. Other than that, I think that's it. So come back next time and we'll do the update and talk about where we're going from here on this series on blockchain and I'll give the update on Syria as well and anything else that may pop up between now and then. So thank you very much for all your support. Thank you for listening and for following this podcast. If you have not done so, then subscribe and you can follow this podcast for every episode that comes out. And hopefully you do so. This is a chronological presentation that ideally is listened to in its entirety. So please do so. And I look forward to hearing from you. If you have any feedback or comments or requests or anything whatsoever, email me anytime. So thank you again. I am out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.